The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with my co-host, Bruce Barquette. And we've got some fantastic expert insider on today to oh, talk. Great stuff. <laughs> Shootings, New Mexico and Alec Baldwin. Uh, can't wait to get to the second half. Um, we're going to introduce an attorney who practices down there that can give us some local insight. Uh, a guy by the name of Brock Benjamin. We'll introduce him a little bit later, but great lawyer and a friend. And he took a shooting, so he actually knew <laughs> what Blinking. he's talking about. Blinking, as it's called. Right. We'll, we'll chat about that uh, in a little bit. Um, so the so New York, much, so much the, crime, so little time. I know. So uh, I want to talk about the New York Post ridiculousness. Okay. Do we skip to that, or do you want to do Biden? Uh, well, Biden. No, I, well, you know what? Let's hit Biden. It's actually two articles out, uh, both in the New York Post. I love Miranda Devine. She um, she's New York Post Australian editorialist. And she's the author of The Laptop from Hell about Hunter Biden's laptop and the suppression of his story. But she weighed in today in a scathing manner. She's a fantastic writer about Biden's fifth trove of classified documents that was recently unearthed on Friday. Um, And I know this is not necessarily crime and justice related, but if I ever did quit the practice of law, maybe, just maybe I could write for SNL because I don't know how they haven't come up with a skit yet of Biden continuously finding these classified documents. You know, when you find an old pair of jeans and you throw them on to go to the store and you reach into the pocket and you find a 20, like, I feel like you could have Biden, Biden, (laughs) Biden putting on his, his old jeans and finding classified documents, a transcript from wiretaps in Uzbekistan, uh, then getting into his car, getting stopped by a police officer, showing his license and registration, reaching into his glove compartment and finding more classified documents. Um, it's it's almost out of control, but I think it doesn't necessarily rise to a crime. At a minimum, it seems to be a pattern of inadvertent potentially gross neglect, but I think gross neglect with classified documents is a crime. And I think what's, what's interesting is what the documents are. And according to Miranda Devine, she said that the first tranche of at least 10 classified documents um, that were found at the Penn Biden center, um, were dated between 2013 and 2016 and included U.S. intelligent memos and briefing materials on Ukraine, Iran, and the United Kingdom. So we'll see. We'll see where this takes us. Well, it it, it takes us to the point where um, Biden is... Now just common for any president to be investigated criminally. Well, it's just, it's unfortunate that, look, we're more careful with our files that involve, you know, relatively speaking, routine crimes than apparently the U.S. government is with 
classified documents. It's, right, but, it's but we bring documents home. And we bring them back to the office, right? right. If somebody went through my house, they wouldn't find old uh, <laughs> murder files under a protective order. They, you know, that stuff goes back to the office. We know where it is and we keep somewhat good track of it. But um, the real, the, the political end of this is what really matters is that it, it, it essentially ensures that Trump won't get indicted for his conduct down in Florida, uh, even though it seems that he was... It's remarkably different. D ...deliberately withholding material and um, hiding it, if you will, and then he deliberately took it knowing he shouldn't, but uh, who am I to judge? Um, so let's go to the... I said the New York Post ridiculousness. Uh, your friend Miranda Devine's article is not what I was referring to. I was talking about their article about a week ago now uh, that indicated uh, that the new discovery reform is wreaking havoc on the system and causing a number of dismissals. And it was so, written by a former um, staff member, maybe executive director at the Queens County DA's office. And it referenced, and this is what happens with a lot of journalism, it'll reference a so-called study um, and, and it was cited, it was Manhattan Institute study and, and tell us just briefly what the claim. Sure. Well, let, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of, um, you know, criminal law 101, if you will, for, for New York. I know speedy, that we have a lot of judges. Speedy trial, Bruce. Tell us what speedy well, trial is. We, I know we have a lot of lawyers and judges that tune in, but we have a number of individuals who aren't that. So here was the, here's the state of the law right now. In New York, if you're charged with a misdemeanor, the prosecutors have to answer ready for trial within 90 days. They don't have to take you to trial within 90 days. They simply have to be, quote, ready, end quote. For a felony, they have to be ready within six months. The new discovery reform law that put in place says that before they're permitted to answer ready, in other words, to actually comply with the speedy trial requirement, they have to disclose to the defense all of the discovery in the case, which includes body cameras, witness statements, uh, police, reports, uh, police reports, expert reports, and so forth. And they're actually supposed to do that within a relatively short amount of time. So when you have hundreds of cases per prosecutor, that becomes very, very difficult to do. Uh, the old law was that they only had to have an information or a charging document that was sufficient and have a good faith belief that they could go forward with the trial. Uh, so what's happening now is the prosecutors are losing all of these cases, not all, but they say 80% of them to dismissals because they can't meet the speedy trial requirements and they're blaming discovery reform. And That's it in a nutshell. Right, so in other words, um, and by the way, I had a friend ask me recently, like, aren't you entitled to all the evidence in the case? Doesn't the government, don't prosecutors have to turn that over? And I said, it depends on the state. It depends on whether it's federal, it depends on the rules. And they were shocked because anyone, a lay person should assume that if someone is being accused and charged with a crime, especially a serious crime, that the prosecutor would open their file and give you all the evidence that they have. Uh, well, we didn't have this for decades. And finally, the law changed and we became entitled to, as you said, everything. But it was very, it has been very onerous for the prosecutor because 
say there's an arresting officer and another officer, um, well, we know those aren't the only two officers. There's often the sergeant that signs off. There's a couple other officers that were at the scene but maybe didn't take statements. We're now entitled to everything that they wrote down or observed. So as you indicate, a lot of cases are getting dismissed because they can't certify that they're ready. And here's the stats, this study with bunny ears around it uh, provided. They said the study points out in New York City in 2019, before discovery reform, 49% of misdemeanor cases resulted in dismissals. But in 221, that number soared to 82%. In 2022, it went a little back down to 74%. The felony stats, and those are what people should really care about, right? Like, who cares if the majority or half of misdemeanors are dismissed? The person was still arrested. They still went through the system. It wasn't a serious crime. It wasn't violent. It was de minimis. The person shouldn't have their whole life blocked. You know, challenges to employment in the future over a misdemeanor, right? But the felonies can be obviously more serious. And, and those stats aren't as alarming um, to, the, to the author. Um, in 2019, 21.15% of felony cases were dismissed. In 2022, after discovery reform law, the number apparently ballooned, ballooned to 35.11%. So like 14% higher, these increased dismissals um, they claimed it was not because the defendant was proven innocent, but because of the DA's inabilities to provide the required discovery materials in time. Here's an interesting fact. There were prosecutors that did an experiment in different states where they refused to allow a, this kind of the reverse argument. They refused to allow plea negotiations from defendants. As a result, of the cases had to be dismissed because they decided to use their resources on the ones where they had most evidence of a crime and the more serious crimes. So I argue that's what's happening here. Well, it's, it's, I, I, look, looking at the study, they're saying that um, a a huge number of cases in the city, I forget the percent, uh, but it was 40% um, were disposed of at arraignments. So people were entering guilty pleas uh, at arraignments. And we've, you know, we don't do that, but we've seen that happen where individuals charged with misdemeanors will plead out to a discon or time served right at arraignment. So those cases don't go any further at all. And there's obviously no discovery. Now that percentage dropped off precipitously because defendants' lawyers know that the case is likely to get dismissed or may get dismissed later on. Or my 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 question is, what the heck was going on before? People were pleading guilty based upon a complaint without any discovery, any investigation, any lawyering at all. A prosecutor just stands up and says, "Hey, you got charged with this crime. You spent in New York City, you know, anywhere from twenty-four to forty-eight hours in a holding cell. Now you're going to be arraigned. Just plead guilty and see you later." And that's fine for a maybe a speeding ticket in Alabama. But for criminal cases in New York, I suggest that that's not appropriate. They should not be pleading people out like that. Right. But I think a lot of people, Bruce, because I was a public defender for six years, and this is a sad reality. And I I tried to um, prevent people from doing this. But ultimately, the choice whether to plead guilty or not comes from the defendant. Is indigent defendants were faced with, I don't want to say Sophie's choice, 
the judge was going to set bail or they could accept a plea to the misdemeanor and time served. So an indigent person that had to go to work the next day or a homeless guy said to himself, I can't afford $500 bail that this judge is most likely going to set. So I'm going to definitely plead guilty to a misdemeanor and time served because it gets me out. So I think that's what was also happening. And now the bail laws prevent a whole number of people from getting thrown back in their agreements. And the answer to this is the prosecutors need more resources to uh, process their discovery requests and actually get the um, uh, material to the defense attorney so that, A, the defense attorneys can evaluate the case and properly advise their clients, and B, so the cases don't get dismissed on speedy trial grounds. The answer shouldn't be, as the article clearly implies, and as prosecutors have been lobbying, that we should abandon discovery reform and go back to the antiquated way it was, which is was nuts, where we got literally nothing until the eve of, not even the eve of trial, we got almost nothing right up until after the jury was selected. People people should, uh, uh, people should understand that what the system was only a few years ago is that we got witness statements and, and grand jury testimony and police reports, not just before the trial started, after the jury was selected is when they were obligated to provide that. And by the way, in, in states that have open discovery laws like New York, there's actually more guilty pleas because defendants go, okay, that's, that sure is a lot of evidence against me. It makes sense for me to plead guilty. I just want to note, because we keep calling it a study. Um, this wasn't a real study. It was, um, it was, uh, comparisons without looking at other indicators and other factors that would contribute to their numbers. And it was done by an American conservative think tank created by ex-CIA. So uh, before we all jump to conclusions, read the headlines and say, oh my God, this is kind of a slanted uh, review of statistics without um, putting them into context. Right. No, I, I, uh, no doubt. But look, we, we, ha- we have to admit, and I think this is true, that a large number of cases are being dismissed on speedy trial that hadn't been dismissed before. Not my cases. <laughs> well, so, no, so, that's some of our cases. But you know why? Because we have some serious felony cases. And those right. And, 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 right. and they, they do pay attention uh, to the, the, the homicides and, and the frauds and the more serious crimes that we handle. Um, but some of those we've, we've won as well. And if we haven't won them, we've filed motions that pressured prosecutors into giving us very good dispositions. Ultimately, um, <clears throat> so... Um, we, we have a brief amount of time. I want to talk, if, if we can, if we can do so in under five minutes, the recent pardon of John Huffington down in Maryland, which is kind of an amazing case. We had him on as a guest, but also uh, the overturning of the second Hofstra conviction in the 1990 killing of assistant football coach um, at Hofstra, which you should talk about because you're familiar with that. Well, that was one of the more notorious crimes in Nassau County. There was a beloved uh, coach from Hofstra. Hofstra University, for those outside of the you know Long Island area is a obviously a well-known college um, or university 
uh, but it sits in an area that borders what used to be at this time a relatively high crime area. It's in Uniondale. Uh, it's near the Nassau Coliseum, but it's also near areas in Uniondale and Hempstead that were known for a uh, high level of drug trafficking and where a number of homicides took place. So walking around there at night uh, could be difficult. And this coach was murdered. Two people were convicted. And a judge uh, who um, we know quite well um, just vacated the conviction of the second man and um, ended up um, ordering a new trial. The, this individual had served his time but the prosecutor is going to retry him anyway. Um, so this is going to be a, a fascinating case that we have to watch a bit um, and, and see how it goes. What was alarming, so a lot of people go, okay, that person's conviction was overturned. It doesn't establish their innocence, right? And there's always an argument about whether someone who claims to be exonerated is in fact innocent and the title exoneration uh, bears the kind of mark of innocence. <laughs> I don't know enough about this case to to say whether or not this individual uh, who served time and people might wrongfully serve time, even if they're guilty, uh, is innocent or not. But apparently it was like out of control um, how many uh, leads and potential suspects and other confessions in this case were withheld from the defense. Um and I think the lawyer said the defense could have pursued leads from four murder confessions, at least 11 suspects. This was a goldmine of exculpatory information. The Nassau County Police Department kept it to themselves. Yeah. Um, look, you know, I have a... And discovery reform fixes that, by the way. That's a perfect... Well, it does if they comply with their obligations and don't, right. and don't lie. They had an obligation to turn over this exculpatory material um, 20 years ago or 25 years right, ago. But now it's not a judgment call for them. They have to turn it over. They don't get right. to make a decision on That's whether or not it's truly exculpatory. Correct. They they don't. But the uh, I don't think the police, from what we I read here and from what Judge Sturm found, I don't think the police actually um, made a judgment call. I think they just withheld exculpatory material. Uh, knowing what it was. And it, it saddens me a bit because, as you know, Nassau County is where I grew up as a lawyer. I was a prosecutor here in the 80s and early 90s. It's an office that uh, really taught me how to try cases and taught me how to be a lawyer. Um, any success I've had since then, I, I owe to the people that trained me. Uh, and I hate to see that county, this county, where our main office is and where I live, um, have these kinds of problems. You don't want to see Brady material hidden at all, certainly not uh, in your home, kind of in your home field. So, and it was Judge Howard Sturm who issued the ruling. He's uh, a great, great judge. Also, and his, and you, <laughs> um, yes, he, he and, is. And he's and he also listens a former, to our show. <laughs> and also a former prosecutor and a, an, uh, and a excellent, excellent golfer. Uh, excellent golfer, one of the best yeah. golfers I've ever played with. So, that's a, that, that's a that, compliment. That counts for a lot. Um, and we we touch upon um, the reversal of um, in forty reversal, seconds. The, the pardon. How many seconds do I have? 
30 seconds. Let's see what you can do. Okay, well, John Huffington, who was a guest on the show, who was convicted when he was 18 years old of a brutal double homicide, uh, got out, had to take an Alford plea, which means he took a plea but didn't admit his guilt, was just um, pardoned by the outgoing Republican judge, uh, Republican governor in Maryland. And it is a fabulous story. Go back and listen to the John Huffington episode. He did 32 years for a crime he didn't commit, and the government withheld microscope DNA evidence that he didn't commit the crime for 14 years. He wrote a book called Innocent, an obscure, an obscene miscarriage of justice that if you could see our Zoom call or our Zoom, I'm holding up in the, on we, my we, we got a commercial break and then we'll be back with Brock Benjamin, a criminal defense lawyer from New Mexico to talk all things Alec Baldwin. and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette, and we've got on the line one of the most reputable, smart, down-to-earth criminal defense lawyers from New Mexico and Texas, and he also practices in federal court um, and specializes in appeals. And why do we have our dear friend Brock Benjamin on tonight? Uh, Well, because everyone's talking about Alec Baldwin and these uh, fishy involuntary manslaughter charges that uh, have surfaced in New Mexico for the shooting on the set of Rust that resulted in the fatality uh, of of the cinematographer and the injuries to another. We have with us Brock Benjamin. Welcome and thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much for the invite. And um, it's been, I guess, catching up. We've realized it's been about five years since I've seen you guys, or five yeah. or six. Yes, and Something interestingly like enough, you, you took us shooting when we were all working on a federal drug trafficking <laughs> charge together. A little lunch break. You don't call it shooting. You call it slinking, which means you go out into the desert and fire guns at targets up against the side of a mountain. Um, or a hill, which is sort of what we did. Um, and you should know that we, we didn't, we didn't ha- we're not having Brock on just because he's our, our friend that we had co-counsel, that he was co-counsel with us. He became co-counsel because we looked around for the best attorney in the New Mexico area, and he came highly recommended. We met with or talked to a bunch of people, and Brock was the guy, and he turned out to be right because the, the case went well for our client. So we decided to have him come back on, talk about uh, Alex, Alec Baldwin's problems. So let's set this up a little bit. So they have a movie set outside of Santa Fe, and they have guns because it's a Western. But the staff or the crew also, and we, that's why we were talking about planking, apparently on the off hours, they enjoyed what we enjoyed for a break, which is to go off into the desert and shoot live rounds, real guns at targets, plinking, I'll put that in quotes for whoever, and somehow the live rounds got mixed up with the blanks or dummy rounds 
and Alec Baldwin was given a gun with a live round that he pulled out and that was fired. He claims didn't pull the trigger, but and, and he did. believed it to be blank. He believed it to not right, not contain live ammunition. Apparently didn't check it before he, he did this. But I believe he was told there was some code term for it, like cold. Cold or something like that. Right. Yeah. So what's the what's the what's involuntary manslaughter, which is what he's gonna be charged with in New Mexico? What does that well, mean? And sorry, I was going to say, and that's what strikes me as odd in this, because involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico is something that's not a felony, but happens without due caution and circumspe circum circumspection. It's one of those words that I can't pronounce. But anyway, it's, I mean, you know, something that has a large amount of risk to it. You, sh you knew you shouldn't have been doing it. However, I'm not sure that. And he's being charged, I understand, under two theories, one that he's the actor that pulled the trigger. And I think the FBI has come out and said that he pulled the trigger, um, you know, or at least is the one holding the gun. But I think the bigger problem he has is I think he's a co-producer. He's being charged as the producer who has a responsibility. And the way that I've equated this in my head is like you would charge a corporation almost, you know, you were the one that was right. responsible. Um, but the thing that I think is most interesting about this is if this was the norm on the set, because I always, I went to old Tucson as a kid. I grew up in Southern Arizona. I always thought uh, movie guns had like plugged barrels. So you couldn't do this. And that's what I find interesting is not only they have live ammunition, they had guns that didn't have plugged barrels, but I mean, I guess that's just me. Um, but so, it was a real gun that fired real bullets that killed the real. Yeah. And that becomes a real problem. I mean, because you know, it, it's, uh, with, I mean, is this without the easiest way to say this without due caution to leave a lot, you know, to take a break right. at time, go shooting, come back and keep filming uh, scene number two or take two. That's kind of, a, I think, a little weird. And here's my question, right? Because um, I don't think there's any question in anyone's head that Alec Baldwin did not mean to kill um kill her. He didn't want to kill her. He didn't think his actions would result in killing her. And if so, he wouldn't have done it. Right. So, right. you know, there's a famous quote from him, like I have grief, but not, you know, I, I feel no guilt, but I feel grief. I have something to that effect. Um, but this whole without due caution, I think I could be wrong and the evidence will come out and we'll see what their theory of prosecution is that he's a producer, he's in charge and a lot of the union workers were complaining to the production house and to him directly that there were unsafe conditions on set. Uh, people were tired, they weren't getting enough sleep, and there had been some misfirings of weapons. So if that's true, that had been, um, he had been made aware of the fact that the staff was tired, there had been already accidental firings um and that would have put anyone in front of him in in kind of a grave situation but on top of that the staff members the unionized staff members walked out of set because they were so upset with the unsafe conditions and rather than adhere to what they wanted and listen to them uh, the production company hired non-union members that were local and gave them their positions. So under that sort of new administration, the firing occurred. 
With, and so the, I think that this boils down to, and New Mexico has had a hard time with this, the definitions of negligence and criminal negligence. And there's an old case, you know, when you guys invited me, I decided to go looking. There's an old case that talks about a individual who was convicted of a shooting on negligence. The defense attorney, and, you know, we asked for jury instructions and you get told, no, I'm not going to do that counsel. You know, I'm going to give what the law is, had asked for a criminal negligence instruction and was not denied was denied that later on that case has been reversed and it's new mexico has been clear that you have to have criminal negligence and so you've got under what you just outlined people walking out on the set but other people coming onto a set i would argue as a defense attorney if you've got people that have been made aware that there's a problem on a set they come on the set they go to work yeah you may have a difference of opinion about what is what is not the standard of care or negligence but you certainly don't have something that offends the conscience or you know is without due caution or something else in those lines does that that kind of make sense where oh, that is? yeah it, i it think does. what you're saying is <laughs> oh, let me it does but look um you and i are both um gun owners right and we you know that's so. why we went out uh we went out shooting is because it, you know, it was something to do it was different for us to, for me to shoot outside which i can't do often in New York, or at least not downstate. Uh, so there's some basic fundamental rules that we all follow. And you would think that if you're handling guns on set, real guns that can fire real ammunition, that you'd follow these basic rules, uh, kind of like rules of the road with guns. My 12-year-old son knows three things. Always assume the gun is loaded. Never point it at anyone on, uh, and don't put your finger on the trigger unless you're ready to fire. So he knows that. If you asked him now, what are the three rules? He would tell you that. And he would. But those rules don't impose criminal liability. Those are those are rules that you and I, as a gun owner, believe are sacrosanct. But I don't know as they impose criminal. Li I don't know as they rise to a criminal negligence world. Well, let me, let me we we add in. I'm gonna. I mean, I, I think I could defend the case. I think I could prosecute it too. Um, the, the, let, let, let's add in some more, some more elements here, which is you know you're going to pick up this gun. You know you're going to point it in someone's direction, and you know you're going to cock the hammer. Um, if you're going to do that, don't you then have an obligation? And I hand you a gun. It's not sufficient for you to say, well, Bruce told me it wasn't loaded. You have an obligation. You're handed a gun to check it, to look at it yourself. Say, like, say, say, the, sure. say the role was Scarlett Johansson. She's never touched a gun. She has an obligation yes, absolutely. to check it herself, to have been trained. I don't know that she does. I think that would be prudent, but I don't think that that's the standard on film sets. It's the professionals with the guns handing the gun over to the actor that are tasked with the responsibility of its safety. And I think what Brock was saying in defense of Alec Baldwin was that, all right, there have been prior complaints, say he's being prosecuted with his producer hat, not just his, you know, I don't mean to say dumb actor hat, but an actor that doesn't have experience with guns. Um, what Brock is saying is, well, now all the tired, angry union members that have been misfiring guns have left and they've just hired new people. They're not tired. They're professionals. And, you know, there's an expectation that they're not going to have these problems. Is but, that sort of what your defense was? Well, I, I, think it, I think it alludes to exactly what you're talking about. 
if this isn't as crystal clear as it is, if I mean, if everybody walked on the set, and there's only three of us left. I mean, you know, now I'm put on notice. But if I've got new people that come in and to use your word, they're fresh. I mean, I think that that's you were talking about facts that lead me to believe that, you know, why am I paying an armor? I mean, she's the one that knows what to do with the weapon. She wouldn't do something that would intentionally done with a weapon. Right. I mean, back to Bruce's thing about 12 year old kid knows not to touch this. Well, that's because he's been trained. Have I been trained? Well, that, that, but you're, you're the one handling the gun. So if I'm the producer of the movie and Baldwin is both that and the actor, <laughs> I'm making sure that the people who are handling actual firearms know the rules. And the other part that I think is the worst part of his liability here and his biz, biggest uh, exposure is that they allowed live rounds on set. To me, th that's inexcusable. You want to have people going, shooting off in the desert because it's fun? I get that. But you, how do you allow, how do you justify live rounds on a set where you know, look, it's just negligence is you're aware of a, a risk and you, you, you kind of disregard it. Um, so you have live rounds. Looking at a round and a, and a dummy round or a blank it may not be immediately apparent, especially from the back of it, back of the round. You're looking at it just where the firing pin hits the hits the shell casing. Uh, it may not be immediately apparent which one is real, which one is a dummy bullet. And, and so I think allowing those rounds on the set, which was Baldwin's, uh, he has the right, the ability, the power to say, you're not having those on the set anytime ever. If there's no live rounds, there's zero chance of an accident. I think that's where uh, I think some of his exposure lies as well. And not imposing on the actors the duty to verify. It's double-checking things. Okay, the armor was supposed to do it. They make mistakes. Mistakes happen. If you have the actor checking it, then you have another layer of uh, safety. And you're talking about a gun firing. What was, this was a 38, right? I, I think... I I, I mean, I think it was 38 or a 44 probably for, I mean, it was a revolver is the picture right. I've seen. Right. But so I mean, a, here's the other question. And, and, and it, I, you know, I guess the word I would use is almost offended me to see hear that they were using live rounds and mixed rounds on a set. The question I haven't seen anybody address is how often is that done? Is that done on 50%, 60%? Oh, we do it all the time. Anytime we go to New Mexico, we always have live rounds, you know, and we go out and shoot all the time just because... We're out, we, we're out in the desert, at a, you know, as opposed to filming something downtown Los Angeles. That's the thing that boggles my mind is how this was even permitted. Absolutely. So if it's permitted, then, you know, I think that changes the, the, standard, of, the standard of care, to use the civil term. So it is, Can I just, for, for a moment, I do want to go back to liability, and I'm, I'm curious whether you think the co-defendant, the woman who is the armorer, uh, faces uh, greater criminal liability than um, Alec Baldwin, um, and maybe maybe we should go into that because Alec Baldwin isn't the gun expert. He's the producer. He's the actor. He was told it was cold. It was a safe gun, and he was working with a cinematographer to get the perfect shot. And I think she was even engaging with him on where to point it specifically. Do you think that there's a chance that the armorer? might get convicted or there might be stronger evidence against her for her negligence. Yeah. I mean, just if you look at the definition of criminal negligence, I mean, cutting out a lot of the words, an actual danger directed toward the victim who might be injured as a result 
of the defendant's acts that is substantial and unjustifiable. I mean, I think Bruce and I, I think, probably agree that it's a substantial and unjustifiable risk to have rounds near a gun that you're going to point at a human being. And so, I mean, I think that that's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be an easier sell than I handed, and you use the word, you know, the, the actor, so to speak, and just, you know, making him the guy that doesn't know the gun or Scarlett Johansson. So... What what are what are they facing? You know, you have all these articles, and I, I never believe the articles without looking at the statute because they constantly misquote or miscite statutes and sentencing. What's the maximum penalty if convicted? I, I mean, as they're floating around, what they're planning on indicting him with, it's eighteen months. Um, the one that I think is interesting is New Mexico, kind of like the federal government has a cascading uh, for use of a gun, brandishing, just waving it around or discharging it, which clearly discharge here. And they're talking, everybody's been citing the statute that talks about discharging it as a five-year enhancement. I think that's interesting. There was a gun, there was a case that talked about two individuals playing a quick draw game, which I don't know, this is, you know, this certainly wasn't a game, but if two people were playing a quick, quick draw game. For us New Yorkers, what's that? Uh, I mean, like a cowboy movie is what I understand to be. You know, they're probably facing each other. They thought they had um, cold, to use the term that's been thrown around guns, and they tried to see who could draw quicker and fire quicker, and one got shot and killed. Uh, the New Mexico court there said that you couldn't, because the firearm was charged in the offense, you couldn't use it as a double um, enhancement, so to speak. You couldn't charge them with the involuntary manslaughter and then enhance them for the use of a firearm. So you're saying there's this strong argument that he he's not actually facing five years based on case law um, that people are citing it maybe to make it more exciting, but really he's facing 18 months. I think he's facing 18 months. I think the and when you know representing somebody like this, the problem is you're representing somebody who's going to be charged with a felony for having done something in his line of work and. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about prepping for this is he's trying to clear his name. He countersued in a civil suit or filed suit in a civil suit trying to clear his name. And so that's something that's important. I think even more so than the amount of time that he may be facing is, you know, how he feels he will come out of this as opposed to the guy who shot somebody on his film set. Yeah, the, the Washington Post actually ran a piece um, uh, today or, or tonight indicating uh, that his comments uh, have caused him significant problems. What do you think about some of the things he said, specifically his claim that he didn't pull the trigger um, when you and I know that the type of gun this is, uh, assuming it's working properly, uh, and the FBI seems to have analyzed and said it is, it doesn't fire. The hammer does not go forward unless you pull the trigger. Like any good attorney, Bruce, I'm going to dodge the question. Have you ever had a client that said something that's helpful when he's talking to the press? <laughs> I, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the problem is the, the attorney's cringing when he says, you know, I didn't fire the gun. I didn't do this. Knowing, you know, knowing that even under his theory of the defense, I would assume it's not going to be that I did or didn't fire the gun. It's going to be, you know, should I have, should well, I be charged with that? Yeah. And people misspeak all the time and you might have your finger on the trigger and not realize that you're. Well, we won't go there for a second, but what's the process? Has he been indicted? Is there going to be an information? Will he get locked up? Will he be handcuffed? What, what can we expect? So you can start a case in New Mexico with a criminal complaint, a criminal information, which is assigned by the DA or an indictment that we know about, you know, where you have uh, 
uh, citizen's return and probable cause. He's going to be charged, it sounds like, by a information um, that then is just signed by the DA and they proceed. He then has the ability, uh, and I've argued this in Las Cruces, I don't know how the DA up there will feel, that I get a prelim preliminary examination, which is nice because you get a cross-examine that. You guys talked at the beginning of the show about discovery, and New Mexico is nice. It's an open discovery uh, state. You get to take witness interviews. You get to um, cross-examine people prior to trial. And so there's a lot of discovery you can get in New Mexico, but it'll start with the criminal information is what it's looking like. They said last Thursday, I guess. And the, and will he? Will there be a perp walk with Alec Baldwin? I, you know, I would assume they will issue a summons, which is just a, you know, a letter that's sent to the attorney and the client saying show up to court for um, your initial. And, you know, my guess is everybody in the world will know about it. He'll show up and there'll be thousands of cameras and a perp walk, so to speak. And hopefully he doesn't punch one of the people with the cameras <laughs> and pick up a new charge. Yeah, that would that would be um you know, keep your head straight forward and just walk and don't make any facial expressions, good or bad, is kind of the advice. But, uh, you know, and so that will be the, uh, I think, will probably how it will proceed. And then it, there will be, you know, if they do do a preliminary examination, you know, they've been broadcasting most court hearings in New Mexico on Zoom. So it'll be interesting. Uh, all right. Uh, fascinating. Um, Brock, we may call you again as uh, events warrant to have you come back in and chat with us um, uh, about New Mexico. Good to see you again. Um, and, and for, for listeners, they can find you easily by going to brockmorganbenjamin.com, right? So if you're in trouble in El Paso or in New Mexico, uh, look up Brock Benjamin. He's a fantastic lawyer, both trial lawyer and criminal appeals. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to hear you and see you. It's good to talk to both of you again. And once again, like I joked before, I still have to find out who who I paid the right amount of money to get you to say those nice things. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, just do good work like you have. We'll be back uh, next week with more Crime and Justice Radio. Uh, and feel free to look up our chief sponsor, which is our firm, BarquetteEpstein.com. Uh, give us a call at 516-745-1500, which is our main number. That's our plug for our firm. We do good work, too. <laughs> See you all next week. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.